1: Hi, I'm Indigo from London, and you're listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is without your name, your age, your gender, or your profession, how would you introduce yourself? Okay, here comes the show, and remember question everything. Hello everybody, welcome to Dame Baptiste's Questions Everything, a podcast for myself, comedian, writer and occasional actor Dame Baptiste. My producer friend Howard Cohen, aka The Hizzer. Hello! And a mix of very special guests posed the questions that need to be asked and we are talking everything from... We are talking
2: everything from Indigo, from London's question, about your name, age, gender or profession, how would you introduce yourself... Dane, what you got there, mate? That is... A good <laughs> that, question. That's a tough... Wow. It's Indigo, tough I think question. you've actually...
1: That's a good question. You've,
2: I mean, that's the first time I've ever thought not had an answer to a, to a, a question from a guest, right? That's a really tough one.
1: It's Well, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough one, I guess, because if you are used to those, I guess they're kind of superficial ways of designating yourself. Yeah. Um, But I think it's a really good question from a great name as well, Indigo. Indigo.
2: I, I, I kind of have a a thought. Yeah. So I think I'd pick an adjective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd be like, hey, how you doing? I'm kind of disheveled. Uh, and that would be my simple way but, you know
1: i suppose if you don't tell people your profession because dishevelled clothes might make sense
2: but also so, it might like change your entire dynamic with human beings could you be like hey how you doing i'm i'm, I'm actually a bit sad today what well, they'd be like oh why are you sad mate oh well see you, and know. So,
1: oh, you understand the question more than you think you do because <laughs> I, I think that's that's what indigo is getting at is that they are saying if you didn't use these normal i guess more superficial or skin or mm. surface level mm. ways of defining yourself how would you so my great answer, question it's it's a great question my, i got an answer though mm. my, my answer is i think uh, it's from the Bill Hicks School of Comedy I am part of the collective consciousness experiencing life subjectively as a tight field of energy within, as a carbon based life form and now
2: the weather <laughs>
0: <laughs> there
2: you go Indigo I hope that answers your question and suffice to say on this show we ask and answer all the questions don't we Dave
1: absolutely every question is welcome no matter what your name age gender or profession is and if you do like the show please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or you can follow us on Spotify and you'll never miss an episode or subscribe to us on ACAST, the world's biggest podcast network where you can hear all of the very special questions being asked and answered by our very special guests. With that being said, on today's show is a multi New York Times and Amazon best-selling author, podcaster, thought leader, ideologue, minimalist philanthropist and climate advisor. She founded the international I Quit Sugar movement and wrote the international bestsellers I Quit Sugar and First We Make the Beast Beautiful. She is focused on driving a global conversation on sustainability and climate change through her recent book, This One Wild and Precious Life, The Path Back to a Connection in a Fractured World, and in her podcast, Wild. She has taken the time to see us in the midst of her podcast and publicity tour as well. Um, So we are very humbled and grateful for her time. Please welcome to the podcast, Sarah Wilson.
3: Thank you. It's funny hearing your bio read out. I just realised how old you are, really.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we wouldn't. Think that? Not at don't. all. Yeah, we we, we, we we don't even think about it chronologically. We just think yeah. about it, you know as creatively and yeah. uh, consciously. Is yeah. that you know doing things, firing on all I cylinders? Think,
3: I think age has been my greatest gift in terms of being able to settle into myself and be able to have reflective thoughts. Yeah you know sometimes you've got to be able to be far enough along the trajectory to see that all those random dots of your life join up and mean something this is it well
1: this what is well, this is the thing this is it's the wisdom of experience and it's something mm. you can only have from experience and uh, i guess from a, a, a Tenure to an extent, and I get, and you know, I would say prior to the commodification of youth, that was the advantage of growing older, is that you would become wiser, and mm. uh, people would respect wisdom because it's something that's uh, it's intellect that doesn't involve academia, which is the issue there. So I completely agree with you. I think one of the biggest benefits I've experienced as I approached or arrived at midlife has been the reflective aspect of existence is that looking back at stuff and realising what was toxic and what was beneficial and what made me happy and what even what toxic experiences were necessary for my growth yeah so yeah, absolutely. I, I hope you've experienced the same as well. Um, I have. On that point, um, how, how was that affected by the pandemic?
3: Yeah, I think it was actually a wonderful experience in being rendered choiceless.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I think humans actually crave that rendering of choicelessness. And so uh, there's a, a really lovely Vedic saying that says, to be rendered choiceless is the greatest freedom. Mm-hmm. So I think there was an element of that. Um, I think. You know, obviously, decision-making and life out in the outer world is all about constant decision-making. Mm-hmm. It's very linked to anxiety. So I think in the initial stages, I have very much felt a de- decrease in anxiety mm-hmm. because FOMO was eliminated. We're all in yeah. it together. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we, shopping was eliminated. So all of those decisions are gone. I mean, that's not an issue in my life because I just don't shop, but others do. Um, and so we were able to... Yeah, sort of settle and Mm. do more reflective thinking. But then as it went on, in Australia, we had very draconian laws. Yeah, I heard, Yeah, yeah. um, Yeah, yeah. Melbourne in particular, it had the longest lockdown in the entire world. And it, you know, so then FOMO did creep in. And I think we did feel that our freedoms were curtailed. Mm. And um, there wasn't enough reflective thinking going on. And if I was to actually sum up all the problems in the world today under sort of one umbrella, it would be a lack of reflective and moral thinking. Mm. We're progressing way too fast and we're not actually pausing and going, hang on, is this what we want? Is this going to be for the greatest good? Who is going to be missing out here if we make this decision? Mm. And um, I mean, that's dialling up massively with AI yeah. the climate crisis yeah. um we just, who, who is stopping to ask whether we want meta, you know? Yeah. Do we want the metaverse?
1: Well, some people stopped but then the uh, mainstream media just didn't really pay that much attention to Mark Zuckerberg's uh, hearings. Mm. So there were questions being asked about do we want meta and what are the worst mm. case scenarios if data and you are trying to get a digital imprint of humanity what happens if that is in the wrong hands? Was the questions that weren't really being asked because no one really paid attention when they saw and then as we began to ask the questions then we already had migrated onto. Um, yeah a more artificial well, we or virtual in, reality
3: yeah and we also live in a culture where there is not a lot of respect for for intellectual reflection um I think you know, neoliberalism has eliminated that kind of pause and respect. You know, just as we've l- lost respect for scientists, and of course, in the climate crisis and the pandemic, we mm. suffered as a result of that. Mm.
2: Yeah. 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 Anyway,
3: we're digressing. Well, it's going to amazing <laughs> already digressing, <laughs> but
2: it is time for a question, Dane, as the format of this show dictates.
1: Absolutely, as our very esteemed guest Sarah, we'd like to pose a question to you. Uh, mm-hmm. that Howard and I have come up with as our very special guest, and we aware that you have travelled very far and in order to grace us with your presence we'd like to ask you one particular question which we'd hope you'd be able to expand on a golden question question. we often
2: have questions three questions whatever no we're going with one question we're going with one question hit me with it Howard well the question is what is the right way to live. Because I think, <laughs> if you've got the answer for that, that'd be great. You know, Isn't it 42? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You, you read the same uh, book as me. Um, no, because I think looking through what you've done in your life and all of the kind of work that you've put in, I think, you know, like the sugar thing is a really great example of, and listen, if you're li- listening to this, guys, and you're chomping on a p- ice cream bar made of sugary candy goodness. Uh, we're not judging you. <laughs>
3: no, I'm certainly not.
2: But um, yeah. it's pretty evident that sugar is a bad thing in the way that we consume it. That's uh, just one example of how potentially to live, right?
1: It is, yeah. It's, um, yeah and just to continue from the sugar point, it's, it's a really interesting uh, point to begin with I'd say that because I come from a community which has a very complex relationship with sugar. Yeah absolutely, yeah. I mean uh, it's, yeah I mean, I mean, I'll mean, let you know. explain well, exactly yeah, why, I mean, but obviously, I can imagine well, Because obviously one of the uh, prime uh, exports uh, from the chattel slave trade as well as human beings yep. was sugar and uh, it was the export and the cultivation and export of sugar which allowed for the West to rise to uh, financial prominence mm. um, and largely drove the uh, slave trade and then uh, following the abolition of the slave trade, um, it's 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 my belief, and I'm sure some people may not believe this, but it's my personal opinion that the diaspora has been very negatively affected by sugar consumption. We uh, are massively overrepresented with uh, issues of uh, a cardiovascular nature, as well as uh, juvenile and adult onset diabetes. And also, for those who don't know, uh, cancer feeds very well on sugar. Mm. And also, when we're talking about sugar, we're not necessarily talking about sugar that is derived from the sugar cane. We're talking about fructose. Which uh, specifically, yeah, really, yeah, which is the, right. which is really this the silent this the silent killer.
2: And, and your journey with sugar, because some listeners may know you, some may not, but mm-hmm. uh, you, you've had quite a journey.
3: Yeah, so I was in what do you call it now, mainstream media (MSM). I was in mainstream media. I worked for Murdoch. Mm-hmm. I was editor of Cosmopolitan. I hosted the first series of MasterChef in Australia. I mean, you know, I was peak commercial media, um, and I collapsed in a heap and got very sick at the age of thirty-four. Um, And for a whole range of reasons, but from a philosophical or spiritual point of view, I really do think it was, you know, there was some life force telling me, we're going to have to slam you into the pavement before you get this lesson. Mm. And it worked. So I pivoted um, and went to go and get myself vertical. I was so sick, I was told I was two weeks away from heart failure. So I had an autoimmune disease, which had rendered me, very unwell but also led to premature menopause or at least I was told mm. that I was never going to have children etc this was at the age of 34 and um, but you had,
2: we just got asked mm. Had you had any idea that before the, you collapsed?
3: Yeah, for six months, I, it's a very long story. I don't know how much you want to go into it, but um, as, the, much editor much of, like as so, the editor yeah. of Cosmo. Um.
1: And I think this is important as well because, uh, you know, well, as you, said, you, as you, you, you mentioned mainstream so. media. Yeah, <laughs> Howard's a hyperchondriac. And also you mentioned mainstream media. and Because uh, I, I always find it very interesting that critical thinkers and uh, new ideologues Normally, have had the epitome of whatever superficial or cosmopolitan experience mm. uh, people kind of aspire towards. So you know, and being, then, we
3: yeah, then we reject it. Yeah, we get severely burned. Exactly. By. Yeah,
1: and be massively disillusioned because obviously, being a very driven and successful woman, being a master chef, you know, editing Cosmopolitan. I mean, these are the dreams of young women. So you know, yeah. it's, it's a really interesting. Well, story. I
3: always had one foot in and one foot out. So I was the editor of Cosmo at twenty nine. I'd never read the magazine in my life. I'd never worn makeup. I'd never worn high heel shoes and to this day I've never owned a handbag. Mm. I think that's an achievement, isn't it, in 2022. T- yeah, at 48. Yeah. Um so put that
2: in the bog. Yeah, <laughs> that's it.
3: On my dating profile, hey. Yeah. Um so I and I worked for Murdoch, as I say, but I was quite I was the token left-leaning female feminist um, voice. I had a an opinion column which I shared with our most right-wing bigoted columnist, um, Andrew Bolt, and he's phenomenal. He's sort of a sky... Mm. A Sky television person now And still writes the same column I moved on I was very much in that realm But I always did it my own way If that makes sense Um, But the friction was such that I was not living uh, I was a square peg Plugging myself into a round hole Mm. I can't blame anyone else Mm. I was lured by all these invites To take my career further And to be challenged But I, I did hit a point Which as you say It was sort of an existential slap down You know That was forced upon me By being in this realm and I got very sick. And long story short, I lost everything and I moved up to an army shed in the forest in northern New South Wales, mm. as one does, mm. and um, and decided I just had to get better. And it was where I could afford to live. And I wrote a column each week for a, a sort of newspaper magazine called This Week I Dot, Dot, Dot. And it was my clever way of earning income and sort of getting um, contra kind of deals to go and try out wellness techniques. And this was Mm. pre the whole wellness movement. Paleo wasn't even a thing. In fact, social media wasn't a thing. Mm. Um, So I, yeah, one week I was short of a topic. Extremely resistant to the idea, but there's nothing like a deadline to make you do something you don't want to do. And so I tried, it was this week I dot 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 quit sugar. So that's Mm. where the title comes from. And I just did it and it was an experiment to see if it could actually adjust some of my health conditions. And I've got to tell you, within two weeks, and this is one of the wonderful things about setting up a business around quitting sugar, within two weeks, the two metrics that really shift is you get A lot of energy and your skin clears up Mm. so you get this sort of vanity hit um, Mm. and quite an instant um, feeling so that actually tends to keep people going but you then go through the real detox period in weeks two to four anyway did lots of study on it went down the rabbit hole and developed a program that worked for me wrote about it turned it into an e-book which became an amazon bestseller i thought if i sold a hundred like and e-books were very new Twitter had been invented by this stage, so I was tweeting ridiculously ugly pictures of vegan chocolate mousses and things like that, yeah. and then um, just deepened the science. V- veganism
1: then wasn't really a thing that much either all. as well. Yeah. So, not yeah. at all. We're, We're talking about... 2011. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. that was uh... – that's you definitely had to mean it as a vegan in those days. That's right. And I wasn't a vegan,
3: but I was, you know, playing around with all different ideas and things. Anyway, it, it just got traction. And I was in the early days playing around with social media, seeing what works. And uh, it grew and grew from Ooh. there into a book and then a digital platform um, and a program, an online program. And I had, you know, dozens and dozens of staff. But that moment when I got very sick and it was a turning point where I was so sick and I'd lost all hope and I um, was at a juncture where I was I was ready to die mm. and I'd been awake for three days. I could no longer see myself in the mirror and I made the decision to live, but I was going to live on my own terms mm-hmm. because I, I figured I could either exit this mortal coil mm. <laughs> or I could decide to stay and do it my own way. So I made that commitment. When I quit sugar took off, I got an accountant, made a commitment that – my financial goal was to reach a point in five years where I could live off the minimum wage until I was 94, you know, indexed. Mm -hmm. And then if I hit that point where I was set up to do that, I would give everything away. So three years ago, I shut down everything Sold off all the assets and gave everything to charity. I don't know if this answers the question that you asked.
1: (laughs) No, 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 it it definitely does because obviously um, it's it's an open-ended question, and uh, it's an open-ended question. But it's also also, we'd like to say it's benevolently loaded because obviously you giving a uh, an an account about your life experience because obviously there would be incremental stages of like positivity and drawbacks before you decided that was a positive way to live. So it's I think the best way Mm. to do it is to just give an example and just kind of yeah. We got to drill down
2: on that last bit there because there's. Many elements to what you talked about that are interesting. but the, the also, we're
1: starting on the physical, and I'm sure that's going to funnel into some of the yes. more metaphysical aspects yes. of a. Uh, so, well-being. in terms of
3: a way to live. Well, and just, yeah. sorry, I've got it. I mean, Please.
2: come on, listeners, you're thinking. You, you, you did what with all everything you owned? You gave it away to yeah. charity, which ge- genuinely would, you know, for the majority. of so a way of, to live. Yeah. That, that, you know, I'm, I listeners think, I think may we, or may we, not want to
1: do that. I, I think we've identified two aspects of modern life, particularly in the West, mm. that underpin most of our experiences and that is how much of our life is governed by as we said sugar and mm. preservatives because that plays a big part in yeah, terms yeah, of yeah, human yeah. existence and uh, it, to the point where some of the sugar we take in probably allows us to perform tasks or we use uh, to supplement food just for our day to day whether it's like eating a cereal bar on a way to work or mm. We've talked talked about loads all the time show. I mean, so that's one thing my, you know and, the, and also materialism mm. consumerism and capitalism. So, yeah, two very And the very two are
3: very deeply intertwined, as you yeah. said, with the slave trade. But also, if you have a look at the multinationals, there are seven food companies that control every product we consume. And they are massive sugar companies. Mm. So...
2: I mean, the, the sugar thing, I, 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 we've talked about a number of times in this yeah. show. And we had Catherine Ryan on. Yeah. And I told her, basically, I've got a problem where if you give me a, a, a pile of sugar in whatever form, ice cream, chocolate, yeah. well, I can keep going. Biscuits cake and all those things yeah. I can eat it all so if you go in now I can eat it all and, and, Howard,
1: <laughs> see, and that's talking where you know it's it's casual, It's a casual abuse of a substance which yeah, yeah. can have a detrimental effect on most human beings and I've had to and really try and, and control, and, control it. and the thing is remember the thing with sugar as well it's the legal high because mm. sugar is the one thing like when you look at a, a country which uh, appears to have re- uh, repressive laws on vice like, mm. like take the United Arab Emirates mm. and people go to Dubai
3: or parts of
2: Asia or parts yeah. of Asia
1: but sugar is Always find that. Oh, yeah. And, and,
2: and, and the thing is, I've kind of found a happy-ish medium with sugar, which is like I really try and not eat it. And then a two-year-old child goes to sleep, thankfully. Mm. Uh, my wife goes to sleep. Not thankfully, but, you know, she goes to sleep. Uh, and I eat something sugary mm-hmm. to complete my day. Small. I try and restrict myself, and that's that's my that's my balance with it. However, when you're talking about material possessions, was, uh, very regularly I say on this show I have no interest in any of it. Yeah. Uh, but most people really do. And to say that you did you find happiness of greater happiness in your life with with nothing kind of yeah. in, in, in uh, to own I suppose. Yeah.
3: Or... In terms of is this a way to live? I think it is because I describe it as elegant. It's an elegant way of living. It's also quite a recalcitrant, um, sticking two fingers up to the mm. to the patriarchy kind of way of living as well, because you don't rely on all the mechanisms that mm. they feed at you. And it feels quite like it's an act of defiance in many ways. But the reason I do it, and I, I said recently that it's laziness. It's not quite laziness. It's, it's probably I've worked out the things that distract people from being able to live a genuinely good life. Mm-hmm.
0: go on let's see how we write these down yeah. no, it's,
1: it's a good point because I, I just want to touch on the uh, giveaway of possessions because for me comedy in, in terms of, and the creativity that is it's allowed to kind of be built upon that yeah. foundation began for me was also an existential question about like acquisition and possessions where I remember I'd had a car on lease and came to the end of the lease and was looking for a new car to begin financing. And I was looking through cars and just trying to look for cars based on like my uh, price range and the like and repayments and stuff. And I remember seeing a, a red Audi A3 and I'm looking at it. And then a question went off in my head where I was like, where are you going to go with it though?
0: And that was the thing. It, was,
1: it, wasn't, it wasn't just like, you know, and it was more, yeah, like I said, an existential question. And I guess the answer was kind of like, what do you really want? Because is it the vehicle in which you travel in or the destination? Mm. and I realised then it was the latter that it doesn't really matter what you drive, it's where is it taking you? Mm. And once I began that question and then began to question all the other aspects of you know the aesthetic I was trying to create about myself and what it even meant to myself for me that was the inception of wanting to of change my true, life. I that's
3: true a layer to that because for me it's not so much the destination, it is the journey I mean we're talking mm. cliches now. So for me I don't own a car and I haven't owned a car for about 10 years, I've only owned a car for about 3 years of my adult life since I've had a driver's licence. So for me, again, I get incredible amounts of joy Mm. from walking and riding – so here in London, I've crossed town multiple times today already on, ironically, a Boris bike. Was a Santana or whatever it's Santana called? Yeah, yeah. Bikes, yeah. And Yeah. Fucking um,
2: useless, but yeah.
3: No, I find them fine. I find them fine. I quite oh, enjoy I it. I But this is to my point. The resistance, right, the yeah. slight bit of work, the kind of the grit is the way to live a life. So for me, having something that's a little bit difficult actually is the thing that brings me joy. So trying to overcome things, resisting, sacrificing, that is the thing. And if we go back to all the things that might be the obvious items that people would list off when they talk about what makes a good life, Mm. it might be friends, it might be family, it might be... You know, having purpose in in your job or a good job or whatever. Really, if you drill down a layer deeper, it's always the friction, the the challenging moments, the wrestle to perhaps have a really good relationship with your partner. It's the wrestle to understand your child that brings the joy. It's Mm. not the easy times that bring the joy. The easy times are only joyful because they are in contrast to what you had to do to get there. And the big problem in our culture today is that we're a shortcut culture. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is we don't do the messiness of sex where it's awkward and there's bodily fluids and there's weird things that we do where we have to forgive each other and that therefore makes us even more uh, grateful for being there. We -hmm. skip that bit and go to porn. Yeah. And it's the same with dating. We don't go all out and do the awkward, oh, ask somebody and then the weird kind of what do I wear and all the twin and froing. We do online dating where we never show up and we do ghosting and, um, you know, all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we do the cheap version, the cheap, easy version of everything. The bit that makes life worthwhile, we remove,
1: which a, is the hardship. Sugar is a great analogy for that because rather than going through the process of growing the cane – chopping the cane and then extracting mm. the sugar and refining it we're just getting it from cornstarch and it's a much stronger hit um, mm. is it I mean even it's a more extreme example but it's like nowadays you've got like heroin and fentanyl now mm. where people want even more or before it was opium yeah. and then that became heroin and which would now become fentanyl because mm. people want that stronger uh, stronger uh, feeling of gratification without the work and it is a uh, it's a really interesting point yeah, in terms sugar, of sugar, yeah. if
3: we can, just to extrapolate further on that, sugar served a purpose. When we were cavemen and women, it was the most instant source of fat on the planet, right? So when you have a glass of Coke or apple juice and then the same thing in terms of sugar, our body doesn't care if it came from apples or from sugarcane or wherever it is, By the time you've drunk it, it's already passing through your system as visceral fat, which is the really dangerous fat. Now, that was fine when we were having sugar from berries or some honey that we would come across. And we were programmed, you know, 300,000 years ago to binge on this, right, to have no off switch. So you probably know this from your previous guest. Fructose is the only food molecule that actually shuts down the ghrelin and leptin mechanism, which tells us when we're full and when we're hungry. So that's why mm. you can sit there with a tub of ice cream yeah. and mm. eat a whole litre well, of people, it. People
1: say about McDonald's as well, you eat it and then you feel hungry You're, you're again. hungry. Yeah. And And
3: and that's because we're designed to be able to binge on the berry bush when we come across it, on the rare moment we come across it, because it's such a good source of fat. We're also designed to be obsessed by it for the same reason, to hunt it out, to actually cross the savannah and risk being eaten by a tiger to find the honey, all for the same reason. And it made wonderful, perfect sense. So I always say to people, Howard, like you Mm. who eat a lot of sugar and you you berate yourself for it, it's biology Mm. and it's not your fault. It's got nothing to do with willpower. Mm. Nothing whatsoever. It will take willpower to just do a few simple things so that you can actually start to retrain your appetite mechanism so it can tell you what to eat in a a healthy way. But you've also got the forces of these big food companies Mm. and their modus operandi and also to go back to your point earlier, Dane, about um, sort of black communities, mm-hmm. um, particularly Hispanic and black communities Just around the world, they have them. been completely targeted in a very conscious. Yeah. They, they have these pyramid soda. sales. Yeah, yeah pyramid Next, sales. Nestle
1: as well, in yeah. terms of like baby formula. I think it's 70% of Mexico's population is obese because Coca-Cola is able to kind of distribute stuff there with uh, with uh, no regulation. Uh, Any domestic cola brands which have tried to do the same have been, they have gangs which like smash up like shops and and like, yeah. And as I said, when, you know, normally the discussion about the diaspora involves, you know, discussions about urban youth crime and these kind of issues when, trust me, diabetes and pancreatic cancer, they are, yeah. Taking it but start, also, not as it much starts easier. with kids. Yeah. The
3: kids; these kids are in schools where they're diagnosed with ADHD. And I foster Indigenous children in Australia, so every kid that comes into my house, it's the same old thing. They're on ADHD medication, but they've been driven to my place and fed McDonald's on the way. They've had a McFlurry or something. <laughs> they have driven in the car for forty-five minutes, eaten sugar. Yeah. They're just off the air, yeah.
1: and I have to take you down. As, as, as indigenous children, their physiology—they're yeah. probably least able to kind of process least simple sugars. Yeah, least able in the world. Yeah, simple 60, sugars. Sixty
3: thousand years of isolation; they had no introduction exactly. to any fermented
1: well, foods. Well, this is it, and it's funny. Um, the comedian Slim, who's been on mm. the podcast as well, he said that you know, in terms of uh, the indigenous man in the Americas and in Australasia, it's the fire, water, and sugar that yeah. destroyed their community. Hmm. Not just the colonization because... Do you
3: mean when you say fire, what do you mean? Alcohol? Yeah. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I mean, that's what was used as bribery was alcohol. And they don't have the biology to actually process alcohol like people who descended from yeah. Caucasian.
1: Well, yeah, and same as, and same as being from the, uh, obviously, having African descent as well. Um, the sugar that has messed up my body the most has been lactose.
2: mm
3: yeah right, yeah, and and that,
1: and that, and, they, and that's what they attribute to the prevalence of pancreatic cancer mm. and uh, adult onset diabetes because mm. of like you know macaroni and cheese and condensed milk and milkshakes. I used like to love milkshakes and ice cream and and, and and also for these communities as well, they're self medicating. Mm-hmm. Mm. Absolutely, they're self medicating. Yeah. I think
2: it's interesting that a lot of the stuff that's come up here, if you're looking at these ways to live, control your sugar, control your consumerism. I think in addition to that bit is how you address the corporations that you mm. are constantly given an option to utilize. Well, that's utilize, the next part of the conversation is that. Right, because it's just yeah. so brutal now. I think food in London is an interesting one for that, right? Because oh, yeah. you look at the corporations and they're now. I mean, like there was a point at one point a few years ago where five guys felt like a kind of cool, that's oh, a yeah, cool absolutely. thing, there's five guys. There. And now it's literally everywhere yeah. and you can't help but think, well, it's... There's probably a downside to that. Isn't there? There's going to be a downside to that. Even though it's a very it's, simple business they yeah, run. But, but when you go to that person who's making this stuff for you, you know, f- for you, <laughs> yeah. as in, you know, that relationship with that consumer experience, particularly in food is an easy one to get across, I think.
1: There's a really good segue in there as well, Howard, because mm. uh for two reasons. Um well, first of all, it's it's a uh, I like to always juxtapose these phenomena alongside austerity and that, you know, we have economically we are in worse times than anyone would know from recorded memory. Mm. But that has happened at the same time that social media or digital media has risen to prominence, which has given the veneer of wealth, the likes of which we've never seen before. The
3: austerity piece, can I just ask yeah. a question there? Because obviously I've come from Australia, but I am very aware of the, the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots around the world. And, yeah. and, um, Australia's a
1: great example because I went to Melbourne for the first time in 2015 mm-hmm. and I observed the CBD and just Melbourne's landscape, and I was like, this place looks wonderful. It's like so many wealthy cuisine. It seems so uh, cosmopolitan and multicultural. But then I remember what got me was going to the opening of the comedy festival and the mayor acknowledging Land being taken from Indigenous people, mm. which I was like, that seems quite noble, but none of them are here. Correct. Hmm. And I had spoken to a friend of mine, a comedian called Craig Quatermain, and he, I was speaking to him. He's from Darwin, I think, originally. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hmm, what's that like? And he was like, I'll be honest with you, I'm feel more comfortable in Darwin than I feel in Victoria because at least in the outback or further in Darwin, I see people that look like me. Yeah, I don't see that in Melbourne.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, Indigenous people represent a little under 3% of the population, So, and they tend not to dwell in the cities yeah. so much. But you're absolutely right, there is an under-representation, there's all kinds of issues. But it's more the point that you said, mentioned about um, austerity and economic prosperity being at some of its worst in um, recorded history. Yeah,
1: things are bad now, but if you were to look on the internet, you'd think that we've never been richer.
3: Well, the thing is, I mean, Stephen Pinker and other voices, Bill Gates and so on, will cite all of this stuff that says that, you know, um, child starvation and poverty and all of these other things have increased. And I always have a problem, and I suspect you do too, with some of these figures because what they don't look at is the the, the quality of life. Yeah. And they don't also look at there is the gap is yawning. Mm. Now, I think in the last couple of years, of course, um, Brexit – COVID, um, but also now the impacts of the climate crisis on food shortages, we're going to see that gap open up again. So Steven Pinker and so on are going to have to go and revise their figures. But we actually do live, comparatively to 200 years ago, um, in incredible prosperity Mm. in the sense that people aren't dying of typhoid in the street, Mm. Um, starvation. I mean, I think 70% of the world back in the 1700s was enslaved Mm. Like seventy percent of the world was a slave, either women or
1: yeah, if it was a chattel or feudalism correct. or serfdom so
3: so in terms yeah, of yeah and, and women as well
1: a very a very really interesting point uh, you know when we discussed uh, the phenomenon of democracy and how the people who are most populous on the planet seem to be in the least, least advantageous position mm. to make socio political decisions America being a classic example whereby. However you chop it, the majority of people that live in America, just by demographics, will be women. Hmm. And yet the decisions which affect their bodies and their representation is now nigh on minimal.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's another can of worms. Absolutely. But I think it needs to be registered that, yes, we we live in a time of prosperity. But I think the thing that's missing is um, what liberalism and democracy and capitalism has done is stripped the things that, to go Mm. back to the original question, Howard, is, you know, um, the things that actually create a a good life, Mm. you know. So, and that then affects all the other things that then, create the have and have not. So in terms of happiness and a sense of belonging and community, when you take that away from indigenous or disenfranchised communities, they've got nothing left. And so they will turn to addictive substance and they're ripe um, to be, uh, you know, attacked by the drug dealer's food um, and and all the rest. So
2: it's so interesting. It's so, you know, I I have views on the world as Dane (laughs) hears regularly. That relate to kind of I I'm just not you know I don't really want to go
1: down these roads too much. About, you know, I'm not into God. Uh, I'm not into like I was into things, fashion. <laughs> but how do you know it's a good point? And you know what I tried to cut you because it reminds me of another great quote I had heard from an Indigenous person that was being interviewed. Mm-hmm. And for me again, it blows my mind. Where they they said the when the world went wrong, as soon as human beings began the concept of mine and ownership. Yeah. That was like it's a fam- like a famous Indigenous Australian proverb. As soon as people said "mine," that's when all of our Whereas problems began.
3: Indigenous Australians are, you know, a very key characteristic is that they feel their main sense of being is that they belong to the land. Yeah, so that,
2: that brings me to the exact, you know, literally just a perfect circle there. <laughs> yes. of where yeah. of, of what I was going to say was that you know, God and and and, and religion and uh, power, money. Monarchy, all of these things that I don't naturally feel affinity for, which if you do, fine, but um, I don't. Uh, Mm. What I do feel affinity for and what makes me feel the purest form of, like, this is what life is, is nature. Every time you see a, you know, I often see that I've got friends, big, burly blokes, who, you know, you make judgments about them, and then you walk along the street with them, they see a dog, and they turn into, like, Gaggly, you know, little giggly mm. children at the sight of, of dogs. And you would never dissect necessarily what that means. But I think it's obvious. is that nature mm. provides us with the greatest happiness. And, and, and a dog, weirdly, I know it's been mm, fucked up by <laughs> the human race, mm. yeah. but the animal, the, the core animal that you're looking at, mm. gives us a feeling, like with children, like with... Why do people like football? You know, you're you're playing on the grass.
3: It takes a British you know. person to use football as an example of nature. <laughs>
2: well, you're playing a game. Do you why? It's because you're playing a game on the grass. That's still at the core. Well, it's very
3: human. It's very yeah. it's very. Forget the, forget the
2: the business mm. bit mm. of football. Yeah. The core of football is that the three of us could now go and find a piece of grass and kick a ball around. Well, it's the human
3: contact. Yeah.
2: And and that's what I mean about kind of nature, like uh, underpinning all of what we talked about. The thing that is battling against all this stuff
1: is is nature. And and, and the problem is, it's the fact that we, when we discuss nature, talk about ourselves in a distinctive way, as Mm. if we're something separate from it. And that, oh, absolutely. And and that's, that's, our, that's our main problem. And for again, me. Again, that
3: started at the same time capitalism came to the rise. Absolutely. The Industrial Revolution yeah. did that separation.
1: Yeah. And, and I'd even go so far as to say the inception of that also began with uh, Darwinian theory of uh, a, what we refer to as a dominant species. Because anyone who's really studied uh, species or just uh, uh, the life of fauna in general knows that we have an interdependent relationship. So, for example, we have probiotics, bacteria, microbes all over our skin. But look at the gut, for example, Mm. even the way we're even able to process sugars alone, we couldn't do it without the bacteria within our gut in the first place, which means we have an interdependent relationship with nature, whereby if these turn off. It doesn't matter how dominant a species you think you are, you can't survive without these. Mm. In the same way that if trees stop exporting oxygen and stop, uh, you know, they stop, uh, we can't respire. And so this idea that we are dominant is part of the problem in the first place because it's it's given us this uh, God complex or superiority complex, separation complex. Mm. And maybe that's part of it as well is that I think a larger number of our pursuits maybe stem from separation anxiety from nature.
3: Yeah, I think that's a really lovely point. I think I looked into this in my book with This One Wild and Precious Life. So the thing was I hiked around the world in the footsteps of the world's most prominent philosophers and thinkers and spiritualists. So, you know, here in the UK, I hiked with an incredible Irish poet, David White, up in the Lake District in the footsteps of the Wordsworths, who were obviously, they started the naturalist movement, which stemmed that, that then became the environmental movement. They're considered yeah. to be the people that really started that. Um, and then obviously in the footsteps of Nietzsche in Switzerland and, and so on. And so all these voices, what's really interesting, they all hiked or walked in nature to develop their thoughts. Van Gogh did. Hmm. Winston Churchill did. Um, Virginia Woolf did Sylvia Plath did some of the biggest thinkers really? in the world I even
1: read a book uh, on the Wu-Tang and the RZA said one of the first things he did was he used to go on really really long walks nice yeah. Wow. Yeah. wow
3: yeah greatest philosopher of our time well, there you go. Um, he's in there he's in there, yeah, yeah. there. but um, so, so that's what I've always done intuitively I've got bipolar And I have always needed to go into nature as a salve. And so I then went and looked at all the science. And Mm. there are around about 40,000 studies that show how nature heals Mm. humans. And the Japanese and the South Koreans are particularly big on this, which is why forest bathing, um, as it's called, there's a – Japanese and a South Korean term for it, but they uh, that's incorporated into their health policy. Mm-hmm. So it's particularly when dealing with children. But one of the studies that I think there's two studies that I think are actually um, support some of the stuff we're discussing here. Firstly, walking. Um, In nature, in particular, but walking goes at the same pace as discerning thought. So, the human brain Mm. and our ability to become discerning thinkers, our brains got bigger as we got vertical and started to walk on two feet. So, the left right motion is perfectly in tune with our ability to think the most clearly. Mm. So, I think that's really worth bearing in mind. I think it's a really good parallel to what. We're talking about here. Probably why
1: the army makes you march when it's trying to drill stuff into your head.
3: All of that kind of thing. And of course.
1: And people say. Walk a mile in my shoes, which doesn't literally mean walk as I walk. It means if you've taken get the same. inside my head. Yeah, get inside my head, and then you can. Get, get yeah. into the
3: rhythm of my thinking. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing that I, I mean, I, I looked at not all 40,000 studies, but quite a few, um, and just pulled the I mean, out. It would have been
2: incredibly impressive if you had done all 40,000 uh, Look, Sarah.
3: I do go down rabbit holes, but. Yeah, but 40,000 um, 40, 40, studies. no. You know, you've got other things. Um, to do. But I did do a bit of the research so that readers don't have to go there, and I found that the, the, the sexiest studies, but one of the other ones I really liked is that nature is made up of fractals which are repeated patterns. So if you think of a shell, it's a repeated pattern, a fern, um, the petals of a flower, you know tidal pools mm. they're repeated patterns and um, our retinas are also made up of fractals. Mm. And so when we see these natural phenomenon or phenomena I should say, there's this what's called congruence in our brain. there's this sort of sense that, we match, this makes sense. And so that's why you get this sense of peace when you're in nature and this sense of belonging. And that's only one study amongst many mm. that shows how there's a sense of belonging, we, we heal, and, it, you know, and I just say to a lot of people when they've got problems, I just go, go and walk in nature. Mm. And don't even have to think about it, whether you're doing the perfect walk, whether you're walking the right way, it's just it so does its job on you. But it's
2: just so, uh, <sighs> I don't know. It's just so fucking obvious, isn't it? Because it's like you, you look at London, right? And I spent my life, me and Dane are Londoners, right? Mm-hmm. And I am very proud of being from London. It's an nice amazing London's place. Are. Yeah. It's an amazing place, you know? But I left because the lady I married was like, oh, I'm not sure about this, and I'd like to put a child in a place that's maybe different from this. So we tried for Cheer, which is just outside of London. Yep. And, you know, I have to explain to people, Dave knows this very well, that I have to explain to people why I'm out there and why it's good and why I don't hate the fact that I'm not in London. Because it's like you become some kind of weirdo. Yeah. He's like, you know quite a few people. Absolutely. We've talked to, Travis, uh, yeah, Travis Jay, has moved to,
1: uh, uh, he somebody, moved to uh, um, like Suffolk it? as yeah. well. Um, Babatunde, Babatunde is also is living in me. and stuff as so well. So
2: people, people that we all knew from London
3: life. I think the but, pandemic also saw a lot of people
2: definitely, cities, yeah. yeah, And it became less reason to be there. But what, what I feel every day, and this morning, I woke up listeners, I put some clothes on, and I cleaned the Rice Krispies off my son's face and put him on the bike, and we cycled through the country lanes to his nursery for 25 minutes. We saw horses. Yeah. We see all sorts of things. Just ve- just vegetation in vegetation.
1: general. Vegetation. He's Good. looking
2: at everything. Mm. Points out the red cars. He likes the red cars. But that's fine. Uh, shout out to Dylan. And um <laughs> uh, it's a perfect bit of life. Mm. It's the yeah. most per- i tell you what it might be the most perfect bit of life I have at the moment. Yeah, I'm it's thinking. the
3: thing we're destroying at the most rapid rate yeah. without any, um, you know, and we were talking off air about moral discussion. And mm. um, it's we free. Allow- Sorry, that's the last
2: thing I'm to say is it's free. I'm on this
3: bike. Which is precisely yeah. why people feel like I can destroy it. Yeah. Because mm. we live in a world where, you it's know. It can't, can't be
1: monetized nor quantified and mm. it's not it's not content that can be uh, broken up or compartmentalised in Except order to be. it's a resource sort of like- that
3: you rape and pillage yeah. and of course that is going to be our destruction. Um, yeah, I, I mean, And as you say, you you feel better and you don't really know why. And it doesn't really matter. Just go and do it. Mm. And, yeah, I I, I feel that a lot of the misery that I see in cities like London comes from the fact that they're just – like I was in Paris and I started to get a bit wobbly. And I just – and it's quite hard to find some grass that you can lie on. Um, The Louvre, for anyone wondering, um, is – a patch of grass where you can actually go online, you know, right. most of them are fenced off. And I just went and lay on the grass. I just know that that is what works. There yeah. is, a, And that's a great thing. It's not only free, it's you can find it in most places. But we do digress. But I think there is very sound scientific reason for why nature can really, really make us feel like we're we we live in a congruence and because, our life is worthwhile. Well, and because,
2: and uh, as we head towards the end of this episode, but the the thing that I felt I feel and lucky, you know, I feel lucky a lot of so time. I might appreciate the things I have in my life. And the other night, I started doing uh, a project, and it's in front of an audience with you know people people I like working with, some who've been on this podcast, and um, I laughed. So, Dane knows, like us people who work in comedy, are fucking hard to get us to laugh, right? Do yeah. you know how yeah. often do you laugh, Dane Like, really laugh? Like, it's not, it's not all every day, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, you it's have kind your of moments.
3: like plumbers have leaky toilets. <laughs> Comedians, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you know, but like to really, it's
1: also, it's also because I guess we're analysing comedy is more of a my way of expressing truths and how I just turn to yeah. the world. But I, yeah, but you're analysing, yeah, I'm yeah. it. Like, so even when I look at something that. People find funny. I still enjoy it, but the level in which I enjoy it on is not only because it's like, oh, there is a affirming truth there that I also You're like, appreciate well and done I for
2: being funny, yeah, as yeah. opposed to like, oh my god, my visceral natural reaction yeah. to that it's is laughter. Uh... And this thing that we've been doing, and you know, Dane's going to be part of it. It, it genuinely, I, I left that night and I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep because I was so. Pumped by yeah. what, and, 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 it, and it's such a and that to me that you can't control that. That's so like, is that
3: your answer to the question?
2: No, I don't think I have an answer to the question, but I do you think nature and connecting like you know those things like laughter mm-hmm. and and all those things? And you know, I, it, it, to me, that seems like the real.
1: To, I, feel, to, I mean, you say you don't have the answer, Howard, but I feel like this is the thing with that answer is that the I, I believe the blueprint for living is an esoteric one which we've had for years and has been a part of our genetic imprint and is one of the things that are passed on, not necessarily vocalised or through literature because Mm. it's much more important that they are passed on as just uh, esoteric truths within us. So in terms of the the London thing, for example, I think what would have been part of the appeal of London for human beings as a social species is that you would be immersed in a uh, melting pot of various cultures and beliefs and ideas and being in a situation where those things are able to coexist by the merit of community or neighborhood would have been one of the laws of being in a place like London because mm. you are not necessarily as isolated as you might be in the countryside. But in that tense, we're only speaking like, you know, ideologically that mm. you're not you're able to meet new people. And as a social species, the more of your humanity you get to experience, the more beneficial that is. That's why people travel. That's why people try different cuisines. Now when you juxtapose that with what a city is and when it becomes an economic centre and becomes very densely populated and that is pushed to the points that it becomes diseconomies of scale for the purpose of capital gain, Mm. then you begin to lose the appeal. In the same way that like... Well,
3: it's a whole... We become a whole bunch of isolates.
1: Yes, exactly. And the
3: the whole communal appeal of a city is lost. And then you throw a spanner in the works like, oh, I don't know, a global pandemic. All the ways that we used to live that we thought we could get away with, i.e. living on our own, in large cities, Mm. you go into a shutdown, you know, when shit hits the fan, um, then all of that other matrix we're we're denied. Um, And that's what we've got to keep in mind, is that it's all very well to isolate and do the individualistic dance. But when we hit a crisis, we are We need need people, first of all, yeah.
1: If we are by ourselves, we're defenceless. If we're facing a global humanitarian crisis without being able to reflect on and engage with humanity you're losing first well, of we,
3: all. we as a species we are actually a pathetic species we don't yeah. have horns, we don't have teeth, we don't have fangs, we don't have, mand- we don't have an we don't ability have mand- to run mandible
1: pressure, we can't digest bone and marrow yeah. in, our, in our stomach acid.
3: All of that yeah. all we have is an ability to form a collective. So when we are encouraged to go off into full blown individualism and leave behind the collective which is what neoliberalism has done for the last since the 1960s, 70s it has got rid of all the institutions that in ensured we kept the collective sacred whether it was church whether it was social groups the scouts movement community groups whether it was trade unions you know whatever it was they've all been removed mm. all of those things that ensured we didn't get too individualistic and so of course we've now become too individualistic and we're defenseless yeah. we are defenseless to deal with the problems we face
2: it has been a... Well, as if as if there was any doubt that we weren't going to get a full episode after that one question, Dane, but we have managed to absolutely do that
1: perfectly. Uh, I, yeah, I had no doubt whatsoever. Um, I, I would like, if, if you do have the time to, come into the late date to continue this conversation, Sarah, has been amazing, and I think what I said at the beginning... Well, I mean, we're discussing the expanse of life and how to live well, which is obviously a dynamic experience anyway, so we'd like to continue the conversation.
3: We should all be um, continuing these conversations right now. Whether or, or not or off
1: podcasts, but... Um, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a great golden episode. Mm. Um, could you let our listeners know where they can find out about your good works, past, present and future?
3: Oh, thank you for that opportunity. Um, SarahWilson.com is my sort of website where you can find most things. But I've got I've got a Substack newsletter where I write about these sort of philosophical quandaries. SarahWilson.Substack.com. And then my podcast is called Wild with Sarah Wilson. And um, that's an ACAST podcast. You can find it on the usual, the usual platforms. Thank you,
2: Sarah. I mean, I, 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 we, we, have, we haven't got to the bottom of it. We got quite far into it. Yeah, it, was it was a good wrestle. A, it, was it was a good, good, was a good, good, good beginning and
1: also, and also, you know, uh, as, we, as we discussed in the themes on the episode, it's about life in general, not our lives or my life. So, you know, life in itself as a force is, is ongoing, and it's, a, it's perpetual energy. And so listeners. We're all contributing to life, hopefully. Mm. Listeners, get on the social experience.
3: media.
1: Tell us how you
3: and then go for a hike
2: and then
1: don't
3: spend
2: your time on social media (laughs) take a
1: walk guys take a walk thank you very much Sarah
3: I enjoyed it thank you
1: you've been listening
2: to Dane Baptiste questions everything hosted by Dane Baptiste and myself Howard Cohen for more from Dane and myself make sure you follow us on Instagram at DaneSnaptiste and at the Howard Cohen please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts if you have a question for Dane, make sure you send us a DM on Instagram at podcast, and we could feature you in our next episode. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. Insanity
3: Group.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.